where have we been? Oh, my goodness. Seems like it's been forever since we did one of these. It has been. It was a different year. Different month. Different time. Yeah. We were different people. Well, I I don't know. I, I'm the same. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about you. I mean, I'm still falling asleep in the afternoon, you know. Oh, yeah. I'm doing that, too. Is that genetic? Is that a genetic problem in our family? You think? You think yeah. it's, you think it was inherited? Yeah, I'm getting a weird like 5 p.m. nap in most days and mm. it's feeling like I'm a real old lady right now. Hmm. Huh. I um I I'm trying to remember if my parents napped. I don't I don't recall when I lived with them that they napped. If we were a family of nappers. Yeah. But probably, I mean, when I left home, you know, as a as an actual active participant in the household, uh, they were pretty young still. So that's right. Yeah. Wait, let's introduce the podcast, please. Oh yeah. Okay. Here this we is, are. This is the the Kate and Vin Skelsa podcast number ten, I think. Now episode ten. Somewhere episode... I, I, I lost episode nine. Somewhere I don't know what that was. That the was that the Christmas show? Episode nine was our special Christmas show with the roaches. Oh, with the roaches. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Okay. So, uh, so how have you been? I'm good. I got back from South America. I did a South American jaunt. Ah, that's why we didn't do a show. You were Yeah, in... well, we had holidays. We got swept up mm-hmm. in holidays, and then I was away for a few weeks. Tell people where you were. For the sake of uh, conversation. I was in Santiago with um, the theater company that I work for, sometimes Elevator Repair Service. Mm-hmm. We were doing our show, The Select, which was our version of The Sun Also Rises, at the International Theater Festival in Santiago, which was exciting because evidently it was the first time they've had a company from the U.S. there in like 20 years or something crazy. Ever since they used to throw people out airplanes. Yeah. <laughs> and helicopters and stuff. When you told me you were going to Santiago, Chile, I, I got all upset. I, you know, because to me, it's still a place where that happens. Where... I know. It kind of feels like a. it's a little bit of a place where you go and you're like, yeah, I, I see how that happened. Like, it's not. Um, there's a lot of like stray dogs in the middle of city streets, like a couple of things like that that you just are not, that let you know you're not in the U.S. Mm. You know, like walking down a really normal city street um, and just stray dogs, like big stray dogs everywhere. And that's just how it goes. And there's a lot of theft. There's a lot of, we have a bunch of people in the company had their bags stolen, had their credit cards stolen. But there's evidently not a lot of violent crime. It's just a cultural thing of like, if you're in Santiago, you're getting your bag stolen unless you like clutch it to your heart. And you hate to be that cliche tourist of like, especially if you're a New Yorker, you pride yourself on like knowing where your bag is Mm -hmm. and knowing not to... You know, if you're in a crowd, you you hold it. But you don't want to be, especially as a woman, this, like, weird perch, 
like holder like oh oh my purse yeah 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 and so, you've been you've been all over the world though yeah and we've been everywhere so it's funny to get to a place where and i've had my bag stolen i had my bag stolen in germany at a private party so yeah. sometimes you can't really tell with these things you have to always be careful but it was there was a sense of lawlessness in santiago that was almost thrilling you know it was really um I felt like I had never been any place like this before. And then we went after we did the show. I mean, I can say it was thrilling because my bag was <laughs> stolen. Right. It was dramatic for some people. Um, and then uh, some friends and I took a trip to the coast after we were done with the show. And we ended up in Valparaiso and Viña del Mar. Uh, which are these really beautiful, crazy coastal towns. And um, we had a really good time. It was one of those good times that is almost too much fun because then you have to recover from it. Mm. <laughs> then you have to go back to real life. Well, somebody that you were traveling with had friends there, right? Or did you have friends there? So there was somebody we, who knew somebody and you went. Yeah, there were a couple of really lovely things where there was our friend's brother lived in Santiago and ended up taking us out. And he's a travel writer, so he knew... Um, the answers to every question. So this poor guy was badgered all week by texts from everyone saying things like, where can I buy milk? Like literally <laughs> he kind of became our unofficial tour guide. Mm. And then we ended up another friend of a friend's family owned, um, an uh, olive grove that produces olive oil in the middle of the countryside. And we ended up there. It was one of those trips that just had a lot of, a lot of blessings were bestowed upon this trip in a way that some tours, I mean, I've been on tour so, so many times and some tours are really hard and you feel like there's kind of forces against you, keeping you from being able to have a good time or even mm -hmm. function normally. And this one just, there were, there were things on our side. It was good. We had a good time. So my fear that you were entering into a strange netherworld of uh, <laughs> right-wing fascist dictatorship and disappeared disappeared uh, college students, yeah, uh, those fears were for naught. Uh, see, but yeah. that's to me that's like that's not ancient history. To to you, that was something that happened in Chile before you were born, even. Right. You know, it was a phenomenon in the late 70s, I guess, into the early 80s. Um, so to me, it's like it's yesterday. Right. And I'm still, you know, we the Skelsa family has a, um, a, 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 a line, like a slogan about traveling, which is yeah. you never go anywhere where there's rebels in the hills. Right. To me, there's <laughs> there's still rebels in the hills there. You know, it's. Uh, yeah, I don't know if there are Just, no it seems like a place that's really invested in in becoming modern mm -hmm. um the only the other funny holdout that we had that was very old school socialist was we get paid uh you get paid on tour you get paid a salary but then you also normally get a per diem to cover daily expenses while you're away and often you'll get handed cash by the by you know the producer when 
you get there. You just get an envelope of cash and that's your money to spend while you're there. And we got paid our per diem half in cash and half in what they were calling vouchers. And at first we didn't really understand what these vouchers were. They looked very official and we had some places took them and we were like, is there a list of places that take these vouchers? Is this something about the festival? The festival has an arrangement with restaurants. And the response was, just ask, just go to a restaurant and say, do you take vouchers? Mm. And we basically figured out at a certain point that we were on food stamps. Wow. (laughs) You know, we've been, and that it was some places will take these food stamps because there was a rule where you couldn't use them for alcohol. Mm-hmm. It was very, and it it was about you know these these are food stamps. These, so, sometimes people get paid this way. Right. Well, now you said you got some cash. Was that in Chilean money? Or? In pesos, we yeah. got some pesos. Yeah, it was it was interesting. I mean, the the other thing about traveling this way, and the reason I don't tend to worry as much about the rebels in the hills, is that. We are traveling always in a group, and we are always there with a local institution. Mm. So it's it's an interesting way to see the world because you always have someone local who is in charge of making sure you're okay. You know, they do that to varying degrees depending on how good the festival is, but you're never showing up in a place without having any connection to anyone. And you have this built-in support system because you're there to do a job. Mm, So it's to everyone's benefit that you don't disappear into the hills. But something that was nice, actually, was then I don't usually stay and take an extra vacation. Sometimes people will um, add on time. If you go to someplace amazing like this that you never expected you would go, you think, well, I may as well stay some extra time. And I never do that. And this time, because I hadn't been on tour in such a long time, I said to a few of my friends, let's plan this little trip. And that was very, that actually did feel very thrilling and kind of (laughs) wrong. We rented a car and we just drove to the coast. And it was uh, this feeling of, oh, no one really knows where we are. There's no company manager checking in on us. It felt like this. Yeah, an interesting insight into how other people actually travel, uh-huh. which is you're just on your own and you just hope everything goes well. <laughs> yeah, and and most people don't even travel like that. Most people travel as part of a tour or you know. Yeah, well, for the same reason. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you, it's a little scary to go mm-hmm. into situations where you have no idea what you're getting into, but it's also, it's also pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. How how was the play received there? It was received really well. We had super titles um, in Spanish. So one of the things that's a little hard with that is we have a lot of visual jokes in the show. And if the audience is reading the entire time, mm. understandably, they're not always watching. So it would, they, were, they were quieter audiences than we normally get with this show. But... Uh, it was a huge house. It was over a thousand uh, seats. Mm, that's... And that was a little intimidating for me because I haven't performed in a couple of years now. So uh, that was an interesting uh, way of... to bring me back. Right. To... Yeah, because you have a, a big, long monologue in that show. 
Yeah, so I really have to have a relationship with the audience. Mm. And I had some, I was, I got pretty nervous. Really? Yeah. Hmm. But I did it, and then it went okay. Wow. Well, good for you. Thanks. Good for you. <laughs> That's extraordinary. How did the bullfight scene go over? Again, this is an, an adaptation of uh, Hemingway, The Sun Also yeah. Rises. So there's a, a big, um, very funny visual um, depiction of a bullfight scene. Yes. They seem to like it. I, I, We're always more self-conscious when we're in uh, a country where they actually know about bullfighting. The uh-huh. other place, we performed this show in Lisbon literally a block away from their bull ring. Mm. And, and we, we actually went to see a bullfight while we were there because. No, was, you didn't. Yeah. You did? did? Yeah. Did I you, told you this. Did you see a bullfight? Yes. I, we had been saying we had been to Lisbon, which is my favorite city in the whole world. And again, not place any place I ever imagined visiting we've been there three times now we've been there once with um each of our shows and every time we've stayed in a hotel across the street from their bullring and their bullring is also a mall it's the weirdest thing it's a bullring on top and it looks from the outside like a very traditional bullring and underneath there was a mall with with a food court and a grocery store. Oh my god! So we would go over there to go to the mall and buy groceries, and we would always we were always there in the off season. There was never a bullfight happening, oh. and we were like, "Well, also, do we really want to go to a bullfight?" And then when we were there with this show, where we had been working on bullfighting and studying bullfighting for years at that point. We just happened to be there in season, and there was a bullfight happening, and it happened to be on a night when we could go. Wow. And it was very controversial within the company. Some people were upset, didn't think that we should go, and uh, it was all very dramatic. But many of us went to a bullfight in Lisbon and then performed this show that has bullfighting in it. And you actually saw it? Yeah. But no. in Portugal, in Portugal, they do not kill the bull in front of you. And that's also very controversial because they are a little wishy-washy on like there. I don't know. Some other someone else might know more about this. I mean, obviously, someone else knows more about this. But <laughs> if any of our listeners know about bullfighting, they can write and tell me. But um, it we kind of looked up like, do they kill the bull? Because they definitely they they stab it with these oh. peaks. Yeah. The picadors use these things called peaks, yeah. and it's it's not nice. It's not good. No. Like, they're hurting the animal. But there's some question at the end. I don't know at what point they decide that it's done. But it's done, and the bull is still walking around. The bull is still upright. So at some point, they kind of call it. and the And the steers come out. And the steers herd the bull back out of the ring. And that was actually kind of my favorite part. It was very beautiful and very odd to watch. The steers bring the bull back out? They bring escort the bull. The bull? They, the, the bull is, in, is still in the ring and he's done. They've called it. Right. It's done. Then they release the steers. There's no people in the ring. They released the steers into the ring, and there was maybe 10 or 15 steers. 
And they just naturally then heard him oh. back. Are, and he, are, are, he leaves with the steers. Excuse me. I, you know, I, I'm not you know so up on my cow uh, sexuality. Is a steer a female? The steers are, let's look. I think so. Steers definition. I'm going to get something. Oh, well, they're called steers because they guide him. So that's a bullfighting term. Oh, I see. So steer, and then let's say steer cow. Steers cows. I mean, cows you usually think of as being female. Oh, no. They are male. They're but male. They okay. are. Um, they're like seeing but they're eye castrated. Glo- they're castrated males. Oh. <laughs> so they're not a threat to the bull. Oh God. The castrated males see the bull out. Yeah, That's they are so weird, they are like his man. buddies. They're his like beta buddies. He's yeah, the yeah. alpha guy. Right. And okay. then his and we every time it would happen, my friend Mike and I would joke that they were like, Come on, George, like it's it's time to go watch the Simpsons. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't no fight. And he'd be like, I'm mad. And they were like, No, man, just let it go. Come on. Like, it would take a couple minutes for him to go with them. Sure, because he knows probably what's going to happen. Well, then, so the thing that they're a little cagey about is what then happens to that ball. Well, now you did say there was a a food market and a food court oh, uh, 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 underneath the. Uh, no. No. <laughs> I, you know what? I am really shocked and surprised that you, who as a child would not enter restaurants out in the American Western states where there were like steer heads. antlers and heads on the walls. I still don't like that. Yeah, but I'm surprised you would go to a bullfight. Well, it was specific to the culture of this show that we were I would not I don't think I would go back it wasn't something yeah. that I was like uh oh I really if you am were, enjoying it, watching yeah this. if you were just a tourist in Lisbon you wouldn't necessarily go to a I don't think so it was it was about having worked on this show yeah and the fact that in that book there's so much about the sensation of what it means to be at a bullfight and the idea of this, uh, the bullfights as a, a way to experience emotion and experience feeling anything for these people who were basically dead inside. Mm. And that whole book is all about this post-World War II, all of these people who have been through the war and ended up nope. living in Paris. Post-World War One. Oh, post-World War One. That's yeah. right. It's post-World War One. Right. Yeah, it's like Hemingway post, um, you know, ambulance driver in in Italy or whatever he was doing. And they've all been scarred by the experience, but we're not going to talk about it, but we're all going to drink too much and have too much sex and try to feel something because we're not actually allowing ourselves to feel what we're really feeling, which is shell shock. Yeah, yeah. And that the bullfights in that book are this metaphor for frustrated sexuality and whatever, but they're actually about this this intensity of feeling that was allowed to these very male characters. You know, if you had to feel something, 
go to the bullfight and that's like a good place to feel things. And also as a replacement for war, as a replacement for these, for the danger and the extreme emotions of what you go through. So anyway, after having read about this and acted it for three or four years at that point, we felt very invested in at least seeing some version of mm. what Hemingway was talking about. Yeah, sure. No, I'm, I'm not, I'm not um, cr- criticizing you for it. I'm just surprised. And now that you explained it, it does make sense. And, and the fact that the bull was not, you did not witness the actual killing of a bull. Um, yeah, that would have been, that would have changed your, your tune a bit, I think. I mean, I might have, it would have been much more upsetting. And that's why, in a way, what they're doing is a little bit of a cop-out because I do think they do kill the bull. They just don't do it in front of you. Mm. So it's like saving you from having to actually deal with what's happening. It's yeah, possible yeah. that sometimes if the bull isn't very badly hurt, that it's to go live in a field somewhere, but that could also be a lie. <laughs> No, he's gonna go live on a farm. He has a great life now that he's been half maimed. But oh. there was there was one member of our company who was on tour with us who uh, is very sensitive to animal rights, and uh, there was a very big, very heated, very long debate uh, where this person was very upset that we had gone. So it was a it. But it was not done without much conversation. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's that's quite an experience. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm. It was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. And the other thing that was fascinating about it was it was almost like a football game. The the audience, the crowd there, was this very working class, like bros drinking beers. It wasn't a high cultural event. It was like a boxing match or yeah, something, yeah, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. And that was really interesting to see that it remained this very populist form of entertainment. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, for us, we're like, oh, Hemingway, oh, research. <laughs> you know, and it's, no, this is just a fun thing to do on a Friday. Drink beer and go watch the bullfight. Go watch yeah. the bullfight, yeah. I guess. Mm-hmm. But we felt it afterwards. There's this great line in The Sun Also Rises, where he talks about the the disturbed emotional feeling you have after a bullfight, and we felt it. It mm. is a weird, it's a weird feeling. Because it lasts for hours also. We left even before it was over. It was, it was at least four hours long. And, and at a certain point, we just had to go. I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about this now. Like, in Sun Also Rises, Jake is impotent yes because of some un unspoken about war injury we assume right and the woman he's in love with lady brett she eventually goes off with a bullfighter right it's a big it's a huge oh, part of the story oh yeah the book basically revolves around bullfighting yeah. that's the whole reason they end up in spain is to go see the bullfights. Right. Well, so much of Hemingway's oeuvre over the years dealt with that. He was a real he loved fanatic it. about it. He loved it, yeah, and loved bullfighters. I mean, he loved it. Yeah. Anyway. So, uh, so that yeah. was what you did in January. 
Well, that that bullfight, that trip to Lisbon was many years ago. So they didn't have, they don't have bullfights in Chile that you know of, or at least I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. No. And there are some places where it's where it's banned, where they've banned it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's definitely it's controversial. Yeah. Yeah, but so I just got back from that trip, and that was lovely. And um, what else has been happening? We had some snowstorms. You guys got snowed in a little yeah, bit. Yeah, we did. We did. And I got. I just got a letter today from uh, from my my friend Louis C.K. <laughs> He's not, yeah. I don't really know Louis C.K. I wish I did, but but um, I'm. Uh, you know, Louis C.K.'s got this this drama. Speaking of plays and drama and stuff. Yeah. He's got this drama. That he's writing and directing and acting in, that he's putting up on online on his website. Do you know about this? I do know because I have someone who maybe is a friend who maybe is going to be in it. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Horace and Pete is the name of the the show. That's so and, cool. And last week the first episode went up. Yeah. And I got a an email because I'm on his mailing list now because I bought the first one for five dollars. Yeah. And the second one is up today, Saturday, the day that we're recording this. Um, and I, I, he, he doesn't say how often he's going to do them, but there's, there's enough topical references in the first one to show that he intends to put them up very quickly after recording them. Yeah. Uh, and it's a real kind of a slice of life, kind of an O'Neill like look at a family that's owned a bar in Brooklyn, a real dive bar in Brooklyn. Uh-huh. The family's owned it for a hundred years. And there's always been a, a Horace and Pete. And and each generation of Horace and Pete's name their kids Horace and Pete. <laughs> so that it gets passed on. So that if you're if you're the new Horace or Pete, you're kind of stuck. And Louis C.K. is the latest Horace, and Steve Buscemi is the latest Pete. Oh, how great. And Alan Alda plays their uncle, Uncle Pete, who's been, uh, he was the Pete a generation back. And he's the bartender now, and he's like an Archie Bunker racist. Right. And every time somebody with a, a guy with a beard walked in during the first episode, he kicked them out. (laughs) <laughs> you, you know he's in brooklyn right i mean so all these young brooklyn hipster guys would walk in and go oh my god look it's like a real dive and he'd just yeah. look at him and go get the fuck out right. get out <laughs> <laughs> right so, so, so it's good yeah it's good okay it's good. good i have recommend an, it i have enormous uh admiration for louis ck and I told you and mom I've been watching Amanda and I just watched that show Unreal. Yeah, we did too. Oh, on, on your recommendation. I love it. Yeah, and obviously there's a season two coming because. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That yeah. is so. Because I'm I've been you know the new thing that I'm writing is about um, two girls who grew up on a reality show. Mm. So I was really interested to see that that's unreal is about it's it's made by a woman who actually worked on the bachelor and it's a behind the scenes fictional take on a bachelor type 
reality show right. and it's so great yeah it's and, a scripted show yeah about not only the the people who are the participants or actors on the show the women and the guy who's like this english guy who's failed at all of his business opportunities and is trying to uh save his reputation so he figures he'll go on this american tv reality show and right and be the center of devotion from all these women and that'll somehow help his business to get back on on top and then it's also about the people who make the show and it's all scripted but then the point is that we find out that much of of the reality show is scripted or at least directed yeah and produced and is phony and all of the various uh, uh, dramatic moments that happen during the show have all been manipulated by the producers, by the behind-the-scenes people. It's very but you clever. Know, you can know when you watch those shows. You know it's fake. You know it's whatever. But it's fascinating to see how they actually do it. Mm-hmm. That they're, the different producers are assigned to different girls on that show and they have a stake in whether or not the girls succeed in the ways in which they manipulate them. And yeah, I mean, it's fiction. It's obviously exaggerated a little bit, but I thought it's just a good show. Yeah, I really think yeah, it. Yeah, it's because it has all the elements of uh, uh, soap opera and intrigue and right. drama and humor as well. Yeah, very well done. Thanks for recommending it. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we're getting our cultural recommendations. Yeah, in yeah. All right, I'll do my plug then since we're uh, on cultural recommendations. We're talking about books and we're talking about your writing career. How is <laughs> uh, how's the book going? Well, uh, it's going really well. So right now, Fans of the Impossible Life is, they're doing a special where the ebook is only $1.99. Wait, hold on. My siren. Is that a fire engine? A Brooklyn, yeah. Brooklyn fire engine or an ambulance? Mm-hmm. Can you tell, <laughs> can you tell the difference? Whether it's a fire engine or an ambulance or a police car at this point? Uh, no, I don't think so. Yeah. We live by a, a firehouse and a hospital. Mm. So you get a lot of ambulances then. Yes, huh? we get a lot of sirens. We're doing, this, uh, we're doing this show today both from Studio V, which is in my home in New Jersey, and uh, Kate's apartment, which is in Park Slope in Brooklyn. Yes, we're skyping. Yeah, we're skyping because we're part of the modern, uh, the modern <laughs> age. I've, I'm, I've come into the modern world. You know how, <laughs> you know how foolish I feel even saying that. Do you know, Kate, that I, well, you know this because you've experienced it. I rarely even check my email now. I know. Since I stopped radio, since I no longer have to go online every day, I don't. I know that's good. Uh, is it because I, I, I'll get these. Mom will come to me and she go, "Kate's really mad at you because she sent you thirteen emails and you haven't responded." And <laughs> well, now I know, I know now. I have to contact mom. I yeah. email mom if I want. That's she's your personal secretary. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I, I dearly love my old, my former listeners. You know, who were still devoted to me and to this podcast and to to the memory of my radio shows and, and all that, but I very rarely, like, 
go on Facebook or any other social media. I'm just, I'm just not, I, I have not, um, my life isn't, it, it's not necessary in my life. And I don't miss it at all. I feel like an enormous weight has been <laughs> lifted, not just the pressure of having to do the radio show and keep up with music and always be creating something in my head that I'm going to use on the show. But yeah. but all of those other trappings that surround the, the job, like email and Facebook and all that. Well, you're getting to be the Luddite you always secretly were. Exactly. Exactly. You're finally just the man in the cave <laughs> left alone. I love it. I love it, man. I tell you, this is what I've been... I've been working towards this my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good segue into, though, we do have, um, actually, you have received some emails that you don't even know about. Yes, because... but, 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 you yes. were, were going to tell about the book, and the book oh, is... yes. So there's an offer right now that won't come around again, because they, they do this very rarely, is that the, so my book, Fans of the Impossible Life, the e-book is being offered for only a dollar ninety nine on all platforms, anywhere you can buy ebooks. So for your Nook or your Kindle or your iBooks, whatever device, and it's only through February fifteenth. It's like a Valentine's Day um, uh, promotion. Wow, dollar ninety nine. That's incredible. Yeah, it doesn't get. Every once in a while, they'll choose to do a special offer with a book, and that's the that's the cheapest I've ever seen. So if you haven't gotten a chance to buy the book yet, this is a really great time to do it. Or if you want to give it as a gift when you buy eBooks, as long as if you have someone's email address, you can, you can gift it to them. Yeah. So I... if you would like to read it or you know someone who would, if you have a copy and you want to give an e-copy to, e-book copy to someone, literally $1.99 to give someone a pretty good present. That's great, man. And, um, that, and that's your publisher that did that, right? Yeah, the publisher will sometimes decide to do, yeah, it's a special for mm -hmm. Valentine's Day for books that they think um, her. I mean, and my book is romantic in its own way. It's yeah, sort of a friend yeah. love. It's a love story. It's a love story. Yeah, it's so, yeah, so, but you have to do it before February 15th. Okay. Fans of the Impossible Life, Fans which is, uh, it's considered a young adult novel, but it certainly is being enjoyed by lots of people who uh, who who are older than young adults. Yeah, it's, it's definitely for adults, too. I really wrote it. I wrote it for myself now with the yeah. knowledge that because it was about teenagers, it would, it would be right for that audience, too. Well, I, I have something for you that is in the... Uh, the New York Times book review this week. Uh -huh. So it's it's uh, Sunday, February 7th, and it's on the bestseller list page, you know, where the, where they have the print hardcover bestsellers. Yes. It's that column called Inside the List mm -hmm. that will give some little uh, incidental fact or whatever about something that's just got on the list or has been on the list for a long time. Yeah. And uh, there's a note here about Danielle Steele. Now, I've never read a Danielle Steele novel. Have you? No. All right. She has a new novel, Danielle Steele. I mean, in in my world, 
Danielle Steele is more like the the punchline of a joke sure. about writers, you know, because you know what Danielle Steele writes. Well, she's so, she's a romance novel. Yeah, right. Oh. That's that's just a genre like young adult or anything sure. else, and it's got yeah. it's all right. So she's got a new book called Blue, and it's it's um, out for it, it came out last week, and it's number one on the New York Times print hardcover bestseller list. A woman whose life has been shattered befriends a homeless boy is the one sentence description. Okay. So listen to this. Danielle Steele's new novel, Blue, debuts at the top of the hardcover fiction list. So this seems as good a time as any to revisit a blog post Steele wrote three years ago that was so popular the traffic crashed her website. (laughs) Quote, As you all know, now and then I air my pet peeves, she began. There is a phenomenon that I have encountered for a long time, years, which I always take personally. It goes like this. I run into a man I know or meet at a dinner party for the first time in a long time. After hello, they open with, so are you still writing? (laughs) <laughs> hmm. This immediately suggests to me that they have not read the New York Times bestseller list in many years, the Wall Street Journal, or maybe they don't read at all. <laughs> yes, I am still writing. What this does is that it immediately puts my writing into the category of a hobby. As in, are you still taking piano lessons? Doing macrame? Have a parrot? Do you still have a parrot? (laughs) I don't have a huge ego about my work, but let's face it. For me, it is a job. A job I love, and I have been doing it since I was 19 years old. Yes, for heaven's sake, I am still writing. Amazing. Isn't that wonderful? Yes, that's really good. I, I suddenly have a uh, newfound respect and admiration yeah. for Danielle I Steele. I like the indignation. That yeah, is- really. Are you still writing? Are you, I, still- you don't. You haven't checked the Times list recently. Really? Have you? <laughs> yeah, because it's not just you haven't gone into a bookstore and seen my books. It's that you don't even know that each book I write is a bestseller. It's a huge hit. <laughs> I am the only writer that matters. And and since she's been doing it since she's 19, I guess that that explains why I feel like she's been around forever. Yeah. Because she's got to be. Out, I think she's one of those people who puts out a book a year. Is she like in her 70s or 80s or something now? So, that's good. I really like that. Danielle Steele. Let's see. I know. Can you find out how old she is? Yes. Danielle Steele is... Oh, you think she's going to make public how old she is? <laughs> no. Uh, and... Oh, this is funny. Born, it's a, uh, she's so, No, she's only 68. Really? She's my age? She's a young woman. Born in 1947 or 48? Born in 47. Wow. She's produced several books a year for most of her career, often juggling up to five projects at once. Let's see, how many books has she written? Someone tell us. It's got to be like 200 books. I, I, yeah, I can't even. 
Yeah, they haven't even bothered to count them. <laughs> <laughs> no, this, there's some guy still counting. They hired him so four they, years ago to count. Yeah, as soon as they get, as soon as they finish counting, she writes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you said you have some letters from our uh, our joint email account. Yes, and I'm hoping I'm not missing any. I get some. You know, I've been getting messages from our email address, which is Kate and Vin Skelsa podcast at gmail.com. You can email us there. I sometimes also get messages through other places through Facebook. So I, I apologize if someone sent something and I'm, I'm missing it, but I have some good things. And, um, this was sent to me by a woman named Barbara, and I think you will forgive her calling you Vince when you hear the whole note. Okay. So she wrote, Hi, Kate. If your father is Vince Skelsa, I was a student of his at Bender Memorial. <laughs> I am sure this was not one of his most happiest of jobs. He was my eighth grade and homeroom teacher. I remember when he left, he gave out some of his items, and I got his Peter Fonda Easy Rider poster, which I hung for years. Wow. I remember him telling us to go for what we wanted, and how he wanted to be a DJ. He showed up at our graduation, which was very thoughtful. I remember the first time I heard him on WNEW and thought, he made it! Then I went to a Hot Tuna concert at the Capitol Theater, and he was the host. He was very inspirational to me. When I dealt with anything challenging, I thought of him following his dream path. When I heard he was retiring, I wanted to get a message to him so he realized how many layers of people he touched. I wish you and your family all the best and hope you get to enjoy your father during his retirement years. Oh, so nice. this is back in one of our early podcasts yeah. we were talking about your life in between radio jobs. We talked about your short career as a teacher at Bender Memorial Academy. Yeah, in Elizabeth, New Jersey. I don't think the school exists anymore. And here's one of your students. Yeah. I've heard from a number of those students. It's really quite amazing. I guess I... They remember you. I must have uh, impressed them in one way or another, not, not necessarily in a positive fashion. <laughs> I, I guess you were a cool I, you were a cool guy. I, yeah. Cool I teacher. gave I gave her my Peter Fonda Easy Rider poster. I can't yeah, believe that. Yeah, that was nice of you. It, yeah, really. Well, <laughs> well, hi Barbara. Uh, <laughs> thank you. I'm I'm glad uh I'm glad you're out there still. Okay, and we have a note from our friend Matthew Billy friend of yes. ours yeah. and of Idiot's Delight. Engineer Matt Engineer Matt, mm -hmm. as some of you may know him, he wrote to say, Hi, Vin and Kate. I finally got around to listening to the last episode of your podcast. I really enjoyed the conversation about White Christmas. You may know this already, but in case you don't, there is a forgotten verse to the song White Christmas. Irving Berlin originally wrote an intro verse that Bing insisted be cut out. It demonstrates that Berlin did not originally intend the song to be a World War II song. Here's the verse. The sun is shining. The grass is green. The orange and palm trees sway. There's never been such a day in Beverly Hills, L.A. But it's December the 24th, and I am longing to be up north. Oh, and I totally agree that Holiday Inn is better than White Christmas. Happy New Year, Matt. So, so that was in response to our last episode with the roaches. Before that, you and I talked about White Christmas versus yeah. Holiday Inn as holiday movies and how they both use the song White Christmas. 
in different ways. So he says that that Crosby argued against using that intro. Yeah, and I've heard that intro on other people's yeah recording. Yeah, it sounded familiar, but it's but, not part of the of of the the collective consciousness memory of that from World War Two, obviously. And it sounds like Bing never sound never sang that intro. Yeah, because it does make it. It really sets it as a very specific story. Mm-hmm. If you're making it. About, right, uh, someone in Los Angeles dreaming about a New England sure. Christmas. It becomes nostalgic in a specific kind of way. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Shout out to Matt Billy. Okay, and I will read one more and then we'll save the rest. Um, so this is from Shelby, who we have heard from before. And you have started to tell the story of Shelby and the bus ride to nowhere. Yes. Didn't I tell it? You did tell it. And now Shelby has sent in his version. Oh. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah. What, what's Shelby's version? Shelby says, greetings, Kate and Vin. I thought you might get a kick out of my recollections of the bus ride to nowhere, which will fill in some very funny missing blanks from the story Vin told on your number seven podcast. Van had announced on the air that he had tried to convince the station to give him a small budget for a little gathering with his audience. He said the station gave Howard Stern huge amounts of money all the time to take his listeners on extravagant trips. And he finally got them to agree to this bus ride idea. He told listeners that there would be a one-day bus trip but wouldn't say to where. Listeners were asked to send in postcards, which would be drawn on the air. He would select 30, and if you were selected, you could bring a friend. I sent in only one card. On the Sunday the cards were selected, at the time Idiot's Delight was on Sunday mornings, Vin had his little daughter Kate on the air with him to help pull cards, those that had been sent in. Ten cards were selected each hour. Mine wasn't selected in the first 20. In the third hour, I was pulling into a restaurant parking lot where I was meeting my sister, brother-in-law, and grandmother for brunch. We're really getting the whole story here. Thank you, Shelby. Several cards were drawn for the last selection, and then, just as I was about to get out of my car, Vin said, oh, this is an interesting card. It's a French postcard announcing a concert of the Talking Heads. He turned the card over and said, this card came from Shelby Ash. Shelby is a longtime listener of mine with whom I've corresponded for years. I'm so excited that I'm finally going to get to meet Shelby. She'll be on the bus. <laughs> well, you can imagine what I was thinking when I realized he thought I was a girl. Yeah. Friends of mine who were listeners to the show and had heard it that morning called and left messages saying they were glad I'd been selected but were hysterical that he thought I was a girl. Now, in those days, there was no internet or email, and I knew there was no way I could reach Vin before the bus ride, which was the following Saturday. So I was feeling a bit uncomfortable about the meeting. I brought my girlfriend. The bus departed from Port Authority, and it was one on one of the upper floors. So there were these super long escalators to get up there. Vin was standing at the top of the escalator on the sidewalk and greeting people as they came up. As we got close to the top, Vin extended his hand down and said, Hi, I'm Vin, to which I replied, Hi, I'm Shelby. (laughs) I am not exaggerating when I say his jaw dropped. He stood there frozen for a second, mouth agape, having gone a bit pale, then looked at my girlfriend, then back at me and said, Nah, she's Shelby, isn't she? You're not Shelby. Once on the bus, he told the story to the group, and then the next day told the story on the air about how he had had these 
Howard Sternian fantasies about Shelby over the years. And then this guy comes up to him and says, I'm Shelby. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I still have a cassette of that show. I should dig it up and try and find a machine. (laughs) The postscript is that I had my 15 minutes of fame following Vin mentioning me on the air those two weeks. I was at a party of mostly strangers in Manhattan a few weeks later, and when I introduced myself to a group of people, one of them said, Are you the Shelby from Vin Skelsa? Oh, that's funny. And then also within weeks of the bus ride show airing, I called to donate money on the air to some radio station. I think it was WBAI. And the person who took my information asked if I was the Shelby Vin Skelsa talked about. My friends and I still get a kick thinking back on the bus ride to nowhere. Says he has some pictures he took that day. But he'll send them to us when he has them. Ah, and he requests. All right, we've gotten a request also. Cheers, Shelby. Thank you, Shelby. Vin mentioned from time to time he would dip into the archives and play tapes of old shows. He nominates one with Leonard Cohen around 1992. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is good because what's happening right now is since mother, our mother, my mother has been uh, drafted into being your assistant now, evidently. We've had her going through your drawers of tapes and interviews and uh, finally making a a list and a catalog of everything that you have because that is one of the things we want to continue to do is to play these old interviews. So we can look for that. What we, the reason mom started is because we've been looking for what I will now call the lost Bowie interview. Yeah. Because you did an interview with David Bowie in the 90s, and I am sure you have it somewhere, and we cannot find it. Well, there's there's such disarray in both the studio and the basement here um, as far as so many of the recordings on on, uh, reel-to-reel tape, which Mom finally gathered up and, and... out of fear that they were a fire hazard, packed and and moved them to a storage facility, the old reel-to-reel tapes, which probably aren't playable now anyhow unless they were processed by a studio that knows what they're doing because they have to be baked, literally baked, um, and then played back once and and recorded before all the... uh, uh, the the chemical on them just falls off because they've right. they've been well and a lot of stuff she donated a bunch of stuff to the museum of television and radio right which and they baked the tapes yeah we played some of that back with the early FMU things when we first started doing this podcast right that's right that's what that was from but I have like just hundreds of cassettes and um, r- recordable CDs and then DAC tapes and. Although I took care of cataloging many of them by cataloging, I mean, I just wrote on them, (laughs) you know, if there was an artist on the show that day and what the date was. But so many of them, I would just, you know, some some kid like all the stuff at 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 NEW and then at um, uh, FUV in like the last 20 years, some engineer would take it and just like throw it into my bag and go, here's the recording from tonight, Vin. I go, okay. And by the time I got home, I just forgot about it and would unpack the bag and nothing would ever, because that show was over, you know? That was the furthest thing from my mind was cataloging the tape of that show because I did that show. 
So there's just such a disarray of unmarked recordings here. But yeah. the, the, the story with the David Bowie recording was that in the early 90s, and it was right around the time, so you'll be able to pinpoint this, Kate, it was mm-hmm. right, right around the time that the Who's Tommy came to Broadway. Yeah. So how old were you when you saw Tommy? You I like think I was 12. 12? That's probably 91 or 92. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was approached by Rolling Stone magazine and hired by them to be an interviewer for a proposed radio show that they were going on the air with called Rolling Stone's One-on-One. And I would be the hired interviewer slash voice they were going to use me you know i would be i would be on the show um but it wouldn't be my show i wasn't producing it and my name wasn't involved in the title of the show or anything like that it looks like 93 brought tommy tommy was on broadway in 93 okay well that makes sense uh and the first two interviews which turned out to be the only interviews that i did because the show never caught on it never got picked up by enough stations i guess i'm not even sure if it was ever actually aired at all but the the two interviews that i did were you know this is rolling stone right so it was pete townsend and david bowie i mean they got they got two of the top-notch a-list guys right right who i don't think i would have ever interviewed on my own necessarily you know, with you know, just by calling up their people and saying, "Hey, can David Bowie come and hang out on my show someday?" You know. Yeah. Right? You had you ever met him before? No, I had never met Bowie, um, nor Townsend. I had mm-hmm. n- never met either of them, and we recorded them in the studio at K Rock WXRK, and I think Kara. Well, Kara claims she was the producer for the Bowie, so she was probably the producer for the for the Townsend as well. But that is to say the studio producer in that she just facilitated making things happen in the studio. Right. But none of us were involved in getting the the recording of the conversation and producing it for the air. And to the best of my knowledge, none of us ever had a copy of the conversation. There was a producer representative from Rolling Stone there who left with the tapes Right. So. But. I got. Well, I know that I have the Townsend. I have have the the Townsend. I have the actual show, the Rolling Stone one-on-one Pete Townsend. Hold on a second. It's right right here. Filed next to Townsend. I mean, that's good. Listen, I don't. Just because. You know, we don't just have to eulogize. We that is also an awesome recording that oh yeah we will want to hear. But it's just because that's there. Why isn't Bowie yeah, there? I don't know. It says um, week of April nineteenth, nineteen ninety three. Rolling Stone one on one with Pete Townsend, and it says Global Satellite Network. Ah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my name is not on the actual CD, but this is how it was sent out to radio stations. And it's actually, do you think it's actually possible that these were never broadcast it's, at all? It's possible. 
It's possible. I don't know. So I have two copies of the Townsend show. Ah, so infuriating. And I can't, I mean, mom and I both have been through this house for a couple of weeks now since Bowie's death looking for this. It is the lost, and it's the lost interview. It, either I never had it, because it's possible that, that I know the Townsend was the first one. That was how they were going to try and sell the show. That's why they wanted some heavy-duty names at the at the beginning of the run. Yeah. You know, either they, they, they ran with the Townsend and they were never able to sell the show to enough stations, and they never did the Bowie, or they did the Bowie and sent me a copy of it, and it's lost somewhere. I, I don't know. And you, do you have any memory of that day and of doing that interview? Well, there's a photograph that was taken of of me and David Bowie, and I've had that photograph ever since. So I remember it simply because of that photograph. Yeah. And my engineer at the time, um, Paul Altimus, who was my K-Rock engineer then, posted something after Bowie died uh, on Facebook where he remembered Bowie saying after the event, it was kind of like therapy. Yeah, yeah. Now it wasn't a direct quote. He said, "I'm, I'm, uh, you know, uh, uh, paraphrasing." Paraphrasing, but that was uh, in knowing how I interviewed people back then. Yeah, it probably was the one thing I do remember talking to him about. Well, I remember about the event. I remember how beautiful he was and yeah. how how hypnotizing his face. And his eyes were. They talk about Bowie's eyes the way they talk about Paul Newman's eyes. Yeah. You know, that they were just so beautiful. And the first thing that you'd see and then you'd lock in and he'd lock on you and you never broke eye contact with him after that. I remember that, just how, how lovely he was. And... um and how he, you know, he put me at ease. He was he was very charming and very friendly. But the one thing I remember that we talked about was learning to play the saxophone, that we both took saxophone lessons at a very early age. And I told him about my sax teacher, Whitey Zarnicky, and he told me and named his sax teacher, whose name I don't remember now. And I think we got around to talking about it because there's always been a rumor that it was David Bowie who played the famous sax solo on Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side. Oh, uh-huh. But actually, nobody seems to remember who did the sax solo. There were, there were musicians who came in and played on you know, those sessions who were just hired hands. It could have been one of them. It could have been... Uh, uh, you know, some name guy like Bowie. Bowie was the producer of those uh, sessions that yielded Walk on the Wild Side. So, did you ask him? Did I, you ask? Him I that asked guy? him that, and I've asked Lou Reed that. Both of them, uh, and nobody remembers. They don't remember. Nobody remembers. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the most famous sounds in all of rock right. and roll. That that solo. But it was maybe just one of those studio things. Yeah. Of like, oh, someone jump in and do this. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. 
How funny. Yeah. So from that, we got to talking about how, uh, you know, how he had taken saxophone lessons as a kid. And I said, oh, yeah, so did I. And uh, and we shared saxophone stories. Yeah. That's uh-huh. all. That's the only thing I remember about it. I don't remember yeah. anything else. I wish I did. Uh, hey, this is Vin um, without Kate. This is me the following day after we recorded the show. Uh, I just wanted to jump in here and mention something about this uh, mysterious saxophone solo on Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side. Because there is somebody in recent years who gets credit on the album where it lists all the musicians. And that is... Um, a baritone sax player named Ronnie Ross, who was evidently a, a studio guy who came in. But the point still remains that at various points in the, uh, in the 90s, neither David Bowie nor, nor Lou Reed could remember or pinpoint or think of who played the, the horn. Neither one of them might have been present even in the studio uh, as I said, that album was uh, co-produced by David Bowie. The album Transformer, which had the original Walk on the Wild Side on it, was co-produced by Bowie and Mick Ronson. So it's possible that, that Bowie was not in the room. So before we get deluged, before my poor daughter gets del- deluged with emails saying, uh, you know, uh, uh, according to uh, the very official liner notes, we do know who played the horn. It's it's still kind of up for grabs, although probably you could you could count on this guy, Ronnie Ross, as being the the official person of record, if not the actual horn player. Okay, back to our conversation. We're talking about David Bowie. But you remember him being very charming. Oh, God. Yeah. He was very charming. He put me at ease completely. Now, I remember that we did the Townsend one first, and then a couple of days later we did the Bowie. So Townsend, I mean, I was terrified. I was as petrified of doing these interviews as you were of going on stage in Santiago a a couple of weeks ago. (laughs) But um, Townsend put me totally at ease. Plus the play had just opened and we had been to all the play festivities and I had seen... For Tommy. For Tommy. And I had seen the show two or three times at that point. So I was so psyched to talk to him about it and into it and all of that that, um, you know, we just we just totally bonded on that and he was um very friendly and i quickly got over my stage fright with him and so i wasn't quite as nervous with bowie except that you know bowie was bowie bowie was different pete townsend is like you know from planet earth yeah and david bowie is not david bowie was from someplace else did you feel that even in your interaction with him beyond his work that no. he had this otherworldly quality or was he very human in interacting with you? Very human. Very down yeah. to earth. Yeah. So what do you make of that, of someone like him whose work is so far out there and then they have it in them, though, to just be a lovely, normal person? Well, 
either he was acting normal. Which time? Which way? Which know, one was acting? Right. Well, he could he could have been uh, uh, you know the, a visitor from outer space acting as a normal <laughs> lad raised in the outskirts of London back in the nineteen sure. fifties, or uh, the other way around. You know that his see. I think I think Bowie was a genius, and yeah. that's a word that we all know is used too often to describe people who are creative, but not necessarily geniuses. I mean, you know, not everybody who who makes a an entertaining movie or a fun record is a genius necessarily. But I think David Bowie, because he created in so many genres and was such a groundbreaking artist, in so many different areas and influenced so many people that he truly was a genius that I, you, but, yes, I but, but I think that he was a genius who was able to remain rooted so he didn't like he didn't go flying off the way some people who were geniuses do you know do you think being a genius is is about connecting to some kind of higher artistic truth? Do you think being a genius is connecting to something that changes culture? What do you think it is? It's the first thing, but then it has... Then it, a, the second thing happens. Then the second thing happens, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a higher artistic calling... Sure. And if you're able to recognize it and give into it and go with it, then you know, then it happens. I mean, and yeah. and the, and the rest of us can't really understand it or explain it or know how it works. And unfortunately, some geniuses lose touch with their humanity, and. You know, it's the classic story about the great painters and the great musicians who were, you know, uh, wife abusers or child beaters or, you know, anti-Semites or whatever. They really weren't very nice people. Yeah. Uh, by all accounts, David Bowie was a very nice human being. Yeah. I mean, he was pretty outrageous when he was young. Yeah. I doubt yeah. If, you sat, if you sat down with him to do a serious interview when he was 25, he might have been more of an outrageous figure. Yeah, he might you have were... been more out there. Sure, like I interviewed Iggy Pop when he was, what, 19 or 20? You did? Yeah, on, on FMU. Oh, my God. And uh, Did I not tell this story when we were talked about I... FMU? Maybe you mentioned yeah, it. And he I'd th like to hear it again. He No, just that he threw up on me. <laughs> It's one of my favorite rock and roll stories. I was just starting out. It was like 1968 or 69. I guess it was 69. And Danny Fields, who was right. working at Electra Records at the time, was doing a show at FMU, this little college radio station in East Orange, New Jersey. And he would bring artists who he was representing at the label out to the station, and one day he brought the Stooges out. The Stooges had come to New York from yeah. Detroit, 
Oh, it's the same thing. He brought the MC5 out. Right. He brought lots of uh, interesting artists who happened to be signed to Elektra. And uh, I was on the air in the afternoon then because it was around the time when I was being drafted. And I, yes. I stopped working on the overnight and I worked during the day because I just I couldn't concentrate on the overnight anymore because I was too worried about being drafted. Uh-huh. I don't know why. I mean, it just it made sense back then, but I wasn't drafted. And uh, but so he brought he brought them by during the day. And uh, I was interviewing Iggy Stooge was his name at the time in the in this little booth. I didn't have a control board or anything in front of me because we were sort of rebuilding the studio at the time. So the control board was in a control room and I was in a little a little room that was like a booth and uh we were talking and he was being kind of goofy and you know uh laughing a lot and i could tell he was high or something i don't know what and he <laughs> just he just leaned over and he and he <laughs> barfed on on my sneaker and i was while you were on the air on the air yeah and i said oh iggy pop uh iggy stooge i mean he wasn't iggy pop then he was iggy yeah. stooge I said, I I Iggy, you just threw up on me, man. And he goes, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> and then, you know, he giggled and he said, well, let's, I said, no, I got to clean up. And, you know, I said, we'll put a record on. Maybe we'll be back. I don't know. <laughs> and I don't remember. So, yeah, when you're 19 or 20, you're going to be uh, outrageous. But if I interviewed Iggy Pop today, yeah, I'm sure he would be, you know, far from uh, uh, drunk or high or anything else. He might have a glass of wine, perhaps. But he's a he's a very well-read, very uh, well-spoken... Serious person. You know, serious guy, yeah. I yeah, mean, I mean, maybe it's if you survive those years of craziness... Maybe. ...then you have to mature into a person who... Yeah. ...has a serious attitude toward your own work or something. Yeah. Yeah, you 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 may be right. I know that Iggy just put out a, or is about to put out an, a new album in which he's 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 um, co-writing songs with some guy who's like from the next younger generation of rock yeah. and rollers, and he's really concerned about his um, his how his work is going to be remembered. Yeah, and right. It's sort of like. Um, it's sort of like part two of uh, uh, The Passenger, you know, like what yeah. he's doing now. And so, yeah, so if if you manage to survive the crazy days when you're more in touch with the outer limits than you are with the, with the right. day-to-day world of human beings, then maybe you come out the other end. I mean, look at Lou Reed, you know, Lou was, right. again, a classic example. The difference in talking to Lou when he was in his 20s and talking to Lou in his 50s and 60s was entirely different. Yeah, right. Well, and it's interesting also because I do think, I, I mean, I mentioned this a couple of times, but I'm the other thing I'm looking at a lot with writing my new book is looking at pop stars, at women who are big big pop stars like Beyonce, Katy Perry, Lady Gaga, and that there even is, with that, it's really interesting because I think there's this cliche of, yeah, the outrageous rock star who lives this glamorous life. 
And, and there's not a lot of understanding about how much work and thought goes into even, you know, what Katy Perry does, whether you like it or not, and whether it seems silly to you or not, that anyone who has uh, that level of success and that kind of a career is actually an incredibly hard worker who puts a lot of thought into what they do. I refer you back to Danielle Steele. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> who, who said, this suggests to me yeah. that uh, they think it's a hobby. It's yeah. not a hobby. It's my job. I work hard at it. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I've been watching a lot of uh, live concert footage from a lot of these women and, and, and whatever behind-the-scenes stuff I can find. And it's just mind-boggling mm. how exhausting the work is and how actually committed to a, a sort of boring life you have to be because you can't you can't afford to live a crazy drug-fueled life and and have that kind of success it's just not going to happen yeah because if you do give into the into the craziness you become uh what's her name i can't even remember her name the the actress uh you know she was in a Woody Allen movie Lindsay Lohan Lindsay Lohan yeah 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 you become a Lindsay Lohan and where is Lindsay Lohan now I mean is she I don't know you know we don't <laughs> we don't know where she is you know I mean well it's it's hard because I think if you are a sensitive artistic person who's doing work and doing creative work and even if you're an actress you you are someone who is going to be more sensitive and more susceptible, I think, to, I don't know, I mean, I'm generalizing, but to drugs and alcohol and living kind of an outrageous life. And when it comes down to it, you're not going to get anything done that way. No, right. And you, and you get surrounded by, if, you, if you're not careful, you get surrounded by people who are going to breed that kind of uh, activity. Yeah, you know, and who are gonna bring it on, and or force you to bring it on for them? Yeah. So you have to so be very yeah. careful. You got to watch who you surround yourself. And with. it is incredible to look at someone like Bowie, who had this career and this influence for his entire life. I mean, the outpouring of love when he died, and the way in which people of all ages talked about what he meant to them. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I can't remember any figure like that who crossed generations like that before. Uh, right. Yeah. Well, the, I think the last, the last figure who crossed generations like that was maybe Michael Jackson to a certain extent. Sure. Yeah. And before him, John Lennon. Right. I mean, even like Kurt Cobain was not really known by an older audience. I mean, his death profoundly affected his audience. Right. Well, that's the thing, right? Is you, the cliche, the rock star cliche is right. You can be self-destructive up till 28. Mm -hmm. And then at 28, you either die or you get to keep going and make a life. Right. Like it's so crazy yeah. that there's, yeah. that that's what happens. Those are the options. Because imagine if, if Cobain had been, had, had been allowed to have a full life and have a career now and what his career would have become. You know, it's, uh -huh. it, it's incredible to think about it. Yeah. Hmm. 
Interesting, well, interesting stuff. And and who's doing the tribute to David Bowie on the upcoming Grammys? Do you know? I don't know. Lady Gaga. Oh, yeah. See? Yeah. Lady Gaga is doing like a an eight-minute tribute to David Bowie on the Grammys. I think that's great. Yeah. Well, so the Lost Bowie interview is maybe out there somewhere. It may be. I we should... can keep praying to St. Anthony for it. I, um, Yeah, and I'm surprised St. Anthony has... He sometimes he plays the long game. Yeah, <laughs> he plays the long game. Things will show up here later. <laughs> I should see if this global satellite network still exists anywhere. <laughs> maybe they, maybe they have it. It sounds like something from a dystopian novel. Yeah, doesn't it? Just... Global satellite banking. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a real thing. <laughs> um. Well, listen. Yes, my dear. We, uh, I know what we want to do next is pick up where we left your personal history at WPLJ. Oh, yeah. And you know what I found? This what? was something that was lost, and I found it while I was looking for David Bowie. Yes. Somebody a couple of years ago sent to me um, a recording, like four CDs of a recording of a radio show. Steve Post, who died last year, who was one of my radio heroes, who was on WBAI back in the 60s and 70s and then was on uh, uh, NYC, did a classical music show for years in the 80s and 90s. Steve Post had this show on Sunday nights on WBAI called The Outside. Mm -hmm. And when things got weird at WPLJ and they kind of... Um, they went from being a very freeform radio station to being a completely closed out um, playlisted radio station. Steve had a bunch of us who were either, who had been either fired or had quit. He had a bunch of us on his show and we were on the show for hours. And Somebody who had worked at WBI, like he was an engineer or something, had the tapes, and he sent me the, the tapes a few years ago. Oh, wow. And I lost them. Yeah. I remember listening to some of it then and thinking, oh, God, this is fascinating. I, I even sent a copy of it to my my late friend Dave Herman. Yeah. But then I, I, I lost interest in it, and they went the way of so many things here in Studio V. They got lost. <laughs> yeah. And... I'm looking for David Bowie a week or so ago, and uh, these these recordings popped up. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go through them and like edit them and just okay. take out some of the highlights. And I think it'll be uh, um, a, a lot of fun to listen to. And is it you guys like airing your grievances? Yeah, yeah, and telling <laughs> telling the story of of what happened there because it oh, was a it was a major FM radio station in the early '70s. Right. When radio still um, was very important and people paid attention to it and it was news in a way um, when a, a station so radically changed its philosophy like that. So, yeah, we have that. So maybe next time we'll talk a little bit and maybe play some of those tapes or maybe we'll talk and, and then yeah. we'll play the tapes in their entirety or something from, yeah. on a separate show. Yeah. Okay, we'll get back get back into the history. We had some catching up to do today. Yeah, I feel like yeah. we had some housekeeping 
with some some listener mail. We had to say hello. We yeah. talked about Bowie. Yeah. We had we had to shovel the the snow. We had to shovel the the emotional and <laughs> we had to shovel the brain snow. Yeah. Did you get snow the other day? Like when it wasn't predicted? Did you wake yeah. up to snow? It was so weird, man. Yeah. I guess that that can happen. Yeah, that can happen. <laughs> God. All well, right. Well, Lovely to talk with you again. Lovely to talk with our listeners again. Thanks, everybody, who's been listening to the old episodes. It's if, really nice. If to... you, if you um, I'm sorry, I interrupt. No, it's just nice to know that people have been enjoying it. If you want to contact us, you can uh, contact us by email at... Kate and Vin Skelsa podcast at gmail.com. That's the best way. I check your Facebook uh, idiots delight messages every once in a while, but the the emails we definitely okay. get. Okay, and I don't check anything. So yeah, don't, Dad doesn't so, check anything. So don't leave a Facebook message for me anywhere because I'm <laughs> I'm there are hundreds of them and I I'll never look at them. I mean I look at them but I don't answer them. You know. Yeah. Um, and and also Kate has a a a, a website. Sure. Yeah. Which has information about her book and um, about things like this current sale that's going on until uh, the fifteenth of February, yep. where the ebook version in all formats of her novel *Fans of the Impossible Life* is on sale at Amazon and Barnes and Noble and wherever you buy ebook stuff uh, for a dollar ninety nine, which is amazing because it's a full length book and. Yep. uh it's pretty pretty rare to see them, you know. And it won't be this cheap again. So even if you don't have time to read right now, you can buy it now. Save it for the summer. Keep it on your e-reader. Yep. Read yep. it later. There you go. Oh, and it's Vin here jumping in once again. I said Kate's got a website, and then we never actually said what that is. Kate's website is kateskelsa.com. And she's all over various uh, social media as well. But it, you can get all those links by going to her website, Kate Skelsa, K-A-T-E-S-C-E-L-S-A dot com. We got sidetracked and we never finished that thought, which I guess is uh, a trait that she's inherited from me because I've suffered from it all my life. Well, this has been episode 10 of the Kate and Vin Skelsa podcast. I thank you for listening. Adios, my dear. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.